one-one can't just be structural because it introduces the origin of the Earth that is that celestial object that we're looking at in verse two. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 92. I interviewed Doug Petrovich about day one of creation. We talk about who wrote Genesis 1, why it was written, the relationship between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, should 1-1 one, one be understood as a header that leads into the content starting in Genesis 1-2, or is 1-1 one, one the beginning of content that continues through Genesis 1-2? We also talk about the light source on day one and how that relates to the sun, which is created on day four. So, with no further ado, let's get weird. All right. Welcome to the show. I'm, I'm, I'm excited, man. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Um, so I had just recently came across uh, the, I don't even remember, the, I th- think the context was I was watching a video on YouTube and it's, it was someone else from, from the conference that is uh, Genesis History and it led to the conference that you guys did in 2017. You had several presentations or lectures um at that conference and i watched one that you did on day one of creation and i thought it was fantastic and so that's what prompted me to reach out to you and uh and so that's kind of what that was the source as far as my preparation went uh, for this interview and uh yeah you really made me think about uh some things differently um and I, uh, I, I loved your, what I loved most about your presentation was your enthusiasm. I could really tell just how jacked up you were to be presenting and teaching on this topic. Um, and, and I love that. Um, so anyway, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, can you, can we start out just by hearing a little bit about uh, who you are and your back, uh, your background? And sure. how you kind of got in, into into this topic? Sure. A um, lot to say there. I, I could have a really long answer, but I'll try to make it as short as I can. Okay. Um, I sensed a call to ministry when I was in junior high. Uh, mm-hmm. I became a Christian. I repented of my sin, believed that Jesus is the Son of God, and that I was a sinful person, and that I needed Him as the only way of avoiding the coming judgment and an eternity in hell. And um, I repented and became a Christian, and I immediately sensed something different, something really weird that was never there before. Uh, being that I've walked with the Lord now, you know, since the late 1970s, looking back, I kind of know that it was the presence of the Spirit of God residing within me, which hadn't been the case before until that very moment of my conversion. And, and early on, I I sensed this call to vocational ministry and I ran from it for quite a long time. And then eventually kind of bowed the knee and said, okay, Lord, I get it. I'm not going to run anymore. I'm not going to hide anymore. Let's go forward. And off I went to uh, Moody Bible Institute soon after that and did a bachelor's degree there. And I grew leaps and bounds. 
I had a fantastic time at Moody, learned so much, especially from the professors and had great relationships with friends that I made there, uh, male and female alike, some of which are my friends until this day. Wow. And, um, and that kind of got everything moving in a direction. And near my time at the end of my Moody experience, I went to um, an event that was sponsored by Moody that was on the second floor of the dorm room, the dorm building that I lived in, which was called Colbertson Hall. And that event was, it's called Seminary for a Day. And I got exposed to all different seminaries of all different kind, some denominational, some non-denominational. And I looked at all their literature and all of a sudden I had this desire, which I really didn't have before, to further my studies because uh, during my Moody experience, I really kind of hid from the languages, from the biblical languages, because when I was in high school, I got a D in German. And I kind of thought that meant languages aren't for me. And I was, I had this fear, this, this block that I couldn't get over. And uh, finally, it took that moment when those seminaries were there. And, and I knew if I were to go to one, I'd have to start studying Greek and Hebrew. And I thought, they can only be harder than German. But what I didn't realize and found out once I started the seminary that I that I think the Lord led me to, which is uh, called the Master Seminary in Southern California, it's where John MacArthur is the president, I all of a sudden discovered there that I could do well in biblical languages. In fact, before I left Chicago, I started studying Greek, not at Moody, but after Moody. And I did really well. In fact, I got an A in it from a really seasoned Greek professor. And I realized that the whole difference was motivation. Right. When I was in high school, I had no motivation to learn German as a, as a kid. But Hebrew and Greek, that's very different because that's the Bible. That, that by this time, it meant everything to me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I had this, this um, inclination and toward the biblical languages and i had this proclivity and god gave me the ability to love it and to do well at it and next thing i know while i was a seminary student i was teaching other seminary students greek once i was in second year greek wow. and um, all of those students who took me they had to pass an entrance exam to be able to teach greek at the seminary and um i'm sorry to, to study greek at the seminary and second year greek and every one of them who took the course with me passed the entrance exam. And that kind of showed me, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. Maybe biblical languages are kind of it for me. And, uh, and right after I started this process, I began as a seminary student to study Hebrew. And I loved Hebrew just as much as Greek. It was more difficult for me, but I loved it, studied Aramaic. And next thing you know, I've got two seminary degrees and I was invited to, to help start a seminary in Siberia, Russia. So I packed up my family. We went to, to Russia. We were there for 10 years. We started a seminary from scratch. During that time, we turned over the seminary to the students that we taught that were the most outstanding and, and, uh, and highest in the potential. Um, and they, they did that. They took over for us. We moved out. And I moved to Toronto to study uh, further, because I, I sensed in my time teaching in Siberia in those 10 years, as much as I loved teaching the Bible and courses related to the Bible, I felt like I needed more to offer students. So I figured a PhD is a great way to do it. And 
I wanted something that would complement what I was taught in seminary because I specialized in the biblical languages. And so I decided biblical history would be it or the history that's related to the time period that we read about in the events mm. of the Bible. Gotcha. So I wanted to study archaeology and the related disciplines. And that's when I looked into options and uh, I was kind of coached by my archaeology mentor, Bryant Wood that the University of Toronto is a great option. It's probably one of the top 20 in the, in the world in, in that field in ancient Near Eastern history. And so I applied, was accepted, and got in. And so we transitioned out of Siberia and went to Toronto when we were there for 10 years. I did a third master's degree there and then did a PhD. And, um, and that PhD was in Syro-Palestinian archaeology as a major, Egyptian language, which is hieroglyphics, as a minor, first minor. So I studied two years of, of Middle Egyptian and then one year of Late Egyptian. And then I studied the archaeology of Egypt and of uh, the, the uh, Holy Land and of Turkey and of Mesopotamia and Nubia, which is to the south of Egypt, and other areas, and really grew in my understanding of the connections between ancient history and the Bible and that really set me up to become somebody who, um, who was was trained inter in an interdisciplinary way, meaning not just one discipline but lots of related disciplines, to be able to then uh, have have the the skills and the tools to piece things together that could be uh, understood through a further study of the historical passages in the Bible. Mm. Wow. Okay. And so where did you actually, uh, so you, you mentioned you were, you studied in, um, Toronto, you taught in Russia, um, you studied in California. Where did you actually grow up? Grew up in the state of Ohio. So I'm a Buckeye for life. Mm. Uh, I lived my first 18 years there in Akron, Ohio. Um, mm. my parents and I moved out when my dad lost his job, uh, in one of the rubber rubber companies that had folded up and moved out of Akron and and basically permanently laid off all the employees. And that was my dad's chance to move to California. He had always wanted to go to California. So I was just ready to graduate from high school. And so I went with my family and as soon as school ended and um, and kind of started a new life there. Wow. 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 So, yes, um, it's like any good teacher, you are a, a good student, right? Um, a lifelong learner. Um, I, I love that. So the topic, um, again, that we're doing today is day one of creation. And this was, you know, I kind of heard you teach on this a, a, a little bit from your lecture uh, in the Is Genesis History Conference. How did you, um, how did you get involved in that? Um, and uh, in this particular uh, passage, you know, creation. Sure. Well, it goes back to how I was introduced to the team that was putting all this together. And really the mastermind is a man, I'm not sure if you know his name or not, um, Thomas Purifoy. He is the producer and director and the uh, writer and basically every hat that you can wear if you're a small um, Christian filmmaking company and he went to actually my archaeology mentor he went to bryant wood and he said dr wood do you know anybody who has studied the 
and, and been able to locate where the Tower of Babel was. And he mm -hmm. said, he said to Thomas, yeah, I've got your guy for you, 100%. His name is Doug Petrovich. He studied at the University of Toronto. He took a whole year course in Mesopotamian archaeology. And during that time, he's convinced that he stumbled into the right site for the, the Tower of Babel events, uh, which, by the way, is not the Babylon of Daniel's day. It's not Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. That was not inhabited at the time of the uh, what I call the post-Babel dispersion. So, um, so Bryant Wood gave my contact information to Thomas, and Thomas contacted me and said, hey, we're doing a film. We're looking at the various parts of the early chapters of Genesis. We want to talk about with, with scholars, uh, you know, issues related to that that maybe you could contribute to. He made sure that everybody had a PhD, and he only interviewed people in the area of their PhD. Wow. So um, that, that got me involved. And then um, as soon as the film was, was nearing completion, uh, Thomas contacted all of us who were interviewed, and he said, I'd like some of you to come and have a conference with us in Nashville. And, and this was the summer of 2017. And so I was one of the ones that, that went. And, I, and Thomas asked me to talk on various subjects. And I said, Thomas, I would love to talk about uh, the issues related to the Hebrew. You know, what is the Hebrew Bible telling us about the days of creation? Because remember, my first area of specialization is biblical languages. Mm -hmm. And I studied under a wonderful professor when I was uh, taking Hebrew. And, and I actually took an extra course that was optional on Genesis 1 through 11. So I had to, tra to translate the entire text mm -hmm. of Genesis from 1-1 one, one to wherever it ended in chapter 11 and, and study that in great depth in, in this course. Mm -hmm. And when I was teaching at the seminary in Siberia, I did the same thing. I decided... You know, I was given such a great gift with this yeah. important course, which is really one of the most important texts in the Bible. Yeah. And I need to to give that gift back mm -hmm. to someone else. And so I taught wow. Genesis 1 through 11 to the students there. And of course, day one of creation for me is kind of where it all starts. So that's one of the things that I wanted to do for that conference in 2017. That's great. Oh, I love that. Um yeah, I, I agree. The you know first eleven chapters of Genesis are are, are so rich. There's so much there. Um, seems like you could study it forever. Um, and even just within that Genesis one, um, and uh, yeah, I, I loved so many of the lectures that I heard from that uh, conference. Um, and uh, so my background background, I uh, I teach um, Bible to as a, like a high school course, um, and. Uh, so it's interesting. I've, I, I know that there are lots of different ways to interpret, um, you know, Genesis 1 as far as what's going on there. And even within that, there's multiple ways to interpret uh, what's going on with uh, Genesis 1-1. Um, and then, of course, how that relates to Genesis 1-2. And um, I think you, you persuaded me to think about this differently than I had prior to listening to, to your lecture. Um, which I love when that happens. Um, and, uh, so let's, um, let's back up a bit and we'll, we'll kind of get into the weeds here in a bit. But, um, the one thing that you said, uh, I think is an, really an important question. And it's, it's one that I think 
we're seeing uh, scholarship sort of deviate from that you kind of um, seem to have a conviction about, and that's the author of Genesis 1. Um, yes. who, who, who do you say wrote uh, Genesis 1? Yeah, you're right. Uh, in the last, oh, let's say 150 plus years, 175 years, somewhere in there, there has been a very different direction taken among especially critical scholars, but that whole movement quickly went into the church, especially with well-trained, academically um, adept uh, pastors and church leaders, the, the movement toward questioning whether Moses really wrote this. And that's a very vital issue. And, um, and, and yeah, I have a strong conviction on it. I know all of the arguments, well, many, many if not all of the arguments that are offered for the position that suggests that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. And I find none of them persuasive. I find none of them based on archeological evidence, epigraphical evidence. It's all based on suggestion and, and inference. And I think presupposition mm -hmm. yeah. and, and wanting to, to prove or to, um, to operate from the platform of what you have preconceived as what must be true there in other words a lot of the a lot of the issue is is trying to downdate all of this because if you say that it was written when biblical chronology would suggest that it was written which means by 1406 bc then all of a sudden lots of things that you find floating around if you will in in the pentateuch uh among other books uh look very strange because they would have to be prophetic and that is a huge part of all of this, that these critical scholars do not want there to be prophetic texts. Why? Because now we're introducing the element of the supernatural. And if the supernatural is valid and true, then all of a sudden you have the potential for a person to be responsible for what's written in the text that is directed immediately toward your spirit as a person, right? Yeah. And, and that being the case, if you say that it wasn't prophetic, you can now alleviate that problem. You can now relieve yourself of that pressure and that tension from a claim that, that you have to confront in your own life with the possibility of God's existing, of God's being and interacting with history very acutely and, and controlling and guiding things that go on in history and how he's working ahead of time and and predicting things that happen hundreds of years later. So all of that, uh, you can pretty much dismiss it if you take the supernatural part of the scripture and you take the prophetic elements of the scripture and you denigrate them to something less than that. And you say, well, they, they had to be written a thousand years later, 400 BC or something, right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden now, those prophetic texts are no longer prophetic. They're just, um, you know, Somebody after the fact, a Hebrew scribe coming along saying, well, let's talk about what happened 200 years ago in 600 BC, right? So yeah. it's a past event and anybody can talk about a past event. You can love it, hate it, or anywhere in between. So that's really the thrust of all of this. But here's the thing, um, internally within the scripture itself, and for me, that's the greater standard. That's the greater judge in all of this. Yes. I don't care so much about what your opinion is or my opinion is even yes. of who wrote the Pentateuch. I care about the people who were around in the time. Mm 
right? Mm -hmm. So you look in the book of Mo in the book of the uh, the books of the Pentateuch, and constantly you have statements made. God is commanding Moses, for example, to write these things down in a book that that he accomplished, right? Or he's told to to write down these statutes as part of his law. Well, if we have the law of God written down in the scripture and God's telling Moses to write these things down, doesn't it sound like Moses then has to be the author of the Pentateuch? Yeah, it sounds a lot like it to me. Now, granted, Moses is not like Paul, the apostle Paul. He starts his letters, for example, saying, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, blah, blah, yeah. blah, right? Yeah. And he, he self uh, confesses that he is the author. And at that point, you just believe him or you don't, I suppose. But Moses isn't that uh, upright, uh, not upright, um, uh, upfront with it, yeah. right? Yeah. With Moses, um, he's a little bit more stealth about it. He doesn't stand up and say, I am Moses. I am the leader of the Israelites, or you know, I'm the one who was called by God at the burning bush. He doesn't, he doesn't make that statement because he's not in an environment where that's really needed. In Paul's sure. day, it was sure. needed because you had a lot of teachers and a lot of false mm -hmm. teachers and a lot of people claiming authority. And so mm -hmm. Paul kind of had um, a, a historical context in which that was needed. Mm -hmm. wasn't true for Moses. So he didn't mm -hmm. write in, in that yeah. kind of way. And the other thing, the final thing I'll, I'll, I'll answer about this question is I pointed out how if your view is that it was a later redactor who wrote this in 700 BC or 500 or 300 or whatever your year is you pick for whatever reasons, if you're saying uh, that's, that's the author of this part of the Pentateuch or that part or these parts or, or the whole part, whatever, then I think it's incumbent on you to have some kind of evidence to support that from the historical mm -hmm. record. Where is the house of the redactor? who lived in Jerusalem in, in 450 BC, right? No, yeah. Nobody's come up with that kind of house with an inscription, the house of the redactor. And then you've got these fragments of biblical text that are there, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you show me that kind of smoking gun, okay, maybe we can talk. Maybe you've got something there, but sure. I'll tell you what I have. Okay. The first book I published, which has come under extreme scholarly criticism and and denouncement i'll add and you can interpret that whatever way you will yeah. the first book is called the world's oldest alphabet published in 2016 and in that book i attempt to identify and answer solve answer and solve the question of in what language were people writing who invented and wrote the first alphabetic script in world history. Not the first script. The first script was cuneiform, and after that was hieroglyphic. So it's the third script, chronologically, that's introduced to the world. And, and it's undisputed, indisputed, it's the 19th century BC when this happens. That we know for sure. Um, I suggest in my book, and it's the thesis of my book, that Hebrew is the language behind the world's oldest alphabet. And in that book, I walk through 15, and discuss in great detail, 15 different inscriptions. And I, in, in my research before I wrote the book, I'm convinced 
I was able to solve the identity, the, the phonetic value of the consonants. Consonants are opposites of vowels. Vowels A, E, I, O, and U in English, and sometimes Y. All the other letters are consonants, right? B, K, R, S, T. So I'm convinced that that um, hmm. it, that the correct phonetic value for the disputed letters of the world's first alphabet, which has pre, which has been what mainly has caused caused the situation to where no scholar had before me with any confidence has identified what is that language behind the world's oldest alphabet and then if you get all the letters right all the phonetic values right for the written letters then you can start piecing together words with confidence understand where words are divided because there weren't div dividers between words there weren't spaces and you could decipher uh, that script so what i was able to do is solve the question of those disputed um, letters that not all scholars agreed on the phonetic value of certain ones of them, six or eight or whatever the number is. And what I did is it, I made it as scientific as possible. I took all the different views, inserted the value, the phonetic value, and then inserted those into inscriptions that were, um, that were well enough preserved that we could read enough of them to, with confidence, if, if we know all the letters, read the entire inscription. And I tried that with all of those such inscriptions. And what I came away with was that if I were, if I was able to, to find the right value, phonetic value for all of those letters, uh, it's kind of like with the prophets, right? The Hebrew prophets were told, okay, if you, by God, if you're gonna prophesy in my name, then there's a number you have to hit to stay a prophet, to stay alive. And that number is 100%. Mm -hmm. If you prophesy, and you're not 100% right in your prophecies, you're not from me, and the people are to kill you. So be careful about saying that you're announcing something from me, right, God mm -hmm. speaking. So 100%. Well, when you insert the, the phonetic value for all those letters, all of the letters, including the disputed letters and the others, with every one of those inscriptions, I tried then to, to, um, trans to um, decipher Every one of them was decipherable with great sense with the same biblical Hebrew that we see in the Bible, right, that, that Moses wrote and, and the other uh, authors. And one of those 15 inscriptions, it's called Sinai 361, one of those inscriptions from Serabit el-Khadim, which is in Sinai, where they were uh, Israelites at this time, I'm convinced, were, were going on expeditions to extract that turquoise as slaves— because all of those inscriptions from that time are pessimistic from this place. One of them, Sinai 361, mentions Moshe. Who's Moshe? Well, there's only one Moshe in the Bible. That Moshe is, in English, Moses. Mm -hmm. And that inscription is from a cave, and those caves are datable by the pottery to the middle of the 14th century BC, to the reigns of Thutmose III and Amenhotep II. Well, who is Amenhotep II? The latter of the two, the son of that... that, that um, previous king. Amenhotep II is the Exodus Pharaoh, which I uh, attempted to prove in 2006 in a journal article I published, uh, which is the most extensive publication ever in history of the Exodus Pharaoh, where I lined up the reign of Amenhotep II with all of the required um, elements of the, um, of, the, of the life and biography of the Exodus Pharaoh, and guess what? He meets every one of those. So here we are at Sirebi al-Khadim in Sinai. There's an inscription that mentions Moshe. 
and the pottery dates it to the reign of the Exodus Pharaoh, right? Mm -hmm. Let's do the math. That's Moses. And, yeah. and the tone of the inscription clearly showed that it was an inscription uh, datable, uh, and, and well, an inscription that relates to the very same things going on that we read about in the Bible in that one year that Moses returns to Egypt with the instructions from God to free his people. It refers to um, a, a, um, a year in which there was um, astonishment or astonishing things that went on. It says, it says um, that, that Moses, Moshe performed astonishing things, and then there's a pause, and then it says, uh, it was a year of astonishment. Why, why a year of astonishment? Well, for decades now, Christian scholars have been saying the 10 plagues on Egypt didn't happen in a day or a week or even a month. That was probably about a year for the 10 plagues. Well, guess what the inscription says? It's a year of astonishment. Yeah. What astonishing things did Moses do? Well, read what happens in, in the account with those 10 plagues. So that inscription screams out at us, this is the historical Moses, Moshe. And, and the inscription testifies to, to the kinds of events that we read about in the 10 plagues. So all of that to say, now I have something that my critics don't. The people who say there was no historical Moses and that the Pentateuch was written by um, redactors hundreds of years later, what do you do with an inscription right. from the 15th century BC, right before the Exodus, mentioning Moses and mentioning the kinds of things that Moses was doing? You tell me, you refute my work. Well, guess what? To this day, nobody has refuted what I wrote and published in 2016. Oh man, yeah, I love the passion, man. And I will say, you you mentioned something that um, really hits home for me because I've had many guests on this show with uh, different views, and I was, you know, I don't have a, you know, prior to doing this uh, podcast, I didn't have a huge background in, in any, you know, scholarly um, work, you know, as far as um, biblical studies. Um, but as I sort of began to read, 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 read more, um, I, I, without knowing what it was, was introduced to all these you know, critical ways of thinking about the text. And once you crack open that door, um, you can become very liberal with how you view the text. And so my mind was sort of blown to see that, you know, you can go as far as seeing the first 11 chapters of Genesis as completely fictional. Um, you can go as seeing as Ezra just kind of piecing together um, different authors for you know the the same book and explaining any type of contradiction away with you know these theories that there's multiple authors for the Pentateuch um, and uh, it's just a it's a very slippery slope and it, you know I think I personally found myself um, going down that slope and just finding less and less confidence in the in the Word of God so it's very refreshing to see someone that's scholarly that's going to also hold to the con a conservative view of God's word. Um, and I, I think what you said, the proof really is in the pudding. You know, if, if we look at, at, at the text, it, it becomes more and more difficult to, to really refute that. And uh, yeah, it, there's almost an underlining, um, I think at the heart of it, you mentioned it. it it's this 
the criticism behind it is, is a, really a hard issue. It's like we want to look at God's Word and we don't want to be accountable for it. And so if we can just make it, you know, fictional or we you mm -hmm. know take the supernatural out of it. And you see it with um, Isaiah, people trying to split that up, people trying to um, say that uh, Peter didn't write Second Peter. Um, you see it with the book of Daniel saying that, you know, that was there's a later date for that and it's just it's unbelievable the lengths that uh, that you know people go to to try to um try to validate uh this um you know critical uh view so anyway uh anyway i'm excited to have to have you to talk on uh genesis one today um you believe was written by moses um you also mentioned in your presentation you know, a rationale for, for why it was written. On the face of it, in Genesis 1, we have how the world was, was, was created, okay? That sounds um, pretty straightforward. It makes sense to we open up the Bible and we read how, how everything was created. Um, so what, what, what's the rationale for, for Genesis 1? You, had, uh, you mentioned something else that had me sort of... Um, thinking about that in, in a way I hadn't before. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly with the book of Genesis, the most, most simplistic theme for the entire book is beginnings, right? Because we see the beginning of the universe, we see the beginning of the earth, we see the beginning of mankind, we see the beginning of, of the animal kingdom, the beginning of uh, plants, the beginning of fish, the beginning of birds, uh, the beginning of sin, the beginning of um, of redemption, the beginning of uh, of uh, of the the extremity. Well, sin itself, but the extremity then of sin in the first two sons that are born to to the first couple on the earth, and so it's on and on and on with these with these examples of of the beginnings of things. So that's one of the things that Moses wants to do with the book of Genesis to show his readers how we know these things came about. And Samuel, here's how I'd put it, and this is really important. I would term it that there is a, uh, a God-centered worldview that Moses wants to instill in the people, right? What does that mean? Well, um, there are multiple questions that determine a person's worldview. Everybody has a worldview, whether you think you have one or not, because how you answer these questions determines what your worldview is. You could have a, um, you could have an atheistic worldview. You could have a God-centered worldview. You could have a polytheistic worldview. You could have, you know, on and on. Um, existential. You could have an existentialist worldview, which was popular about a hundred years ago in our country and in France before that. So there are options, but you know. Um, how do you account for the origin of all things? Um, what is mankind or humanity? What happens at death? Um, you know, um, the issue of metaphysics. You know, so there, there are these various questions that you could ask that every person has an answer to, however basic the answer would be. And that pegs you. That puts you in a position that other people share with you. And that being the case... I'm convinced that Moses understood what was about to happen, that he was going to die, and then the Israelites would cross to the west. They'd cross the Jordan Rift Valley, which includes 
the Jordan River as part of that. They'd enter into the promised land of Canaan, and they would live out their lives there, and they would live there for generations because that's the land of promise that God promised first to Abram. And now they were returning to that land of promise. And Moses also knew that the people were under uh, obligation by God. He instructed them that they were to, you know, whether this is pretty or not, it's the reality. He instructed them to go in and slaughter all of the men, women, children, and animals that, that belonged to those people who were in Canaan. All the Canaanites were to be exterminated. That's a whole different podcast, right? Right. Uh, but he, he instructed that. Moses knew what I think, what God knew in this one thing, which is the people weren't going to go, going to go in there and do everything they were supposed to do. They were going to fail at the job. And what, what did that mean? What was the consequence? What was the result of that failure? The consequence was that the Israelites now would be living among the Canaanites. Does that sound familiar? We live among people with a worldview hostile to ours mm -hmm. every day. We don't live in a country where only Christians are there, do we? We mm -hmm. live in a country where there are lots of different worldviews, lots of worldviews that are antithetical to a God-centered Christian worldview. So um, Moses knew that this was going to happen. And so what did he do? And, and remember, the other part of it is what, what separates the Bible from any other book is dual authorship. And I don't mean two human authors. I mean, I mean human author and divine author together. That's the mind-blowing mystery of, of the Word of God that separates it from every book ever written. Because in the original manuscripts, it was without error. That's what the Bible tells us about itself, that it was written without error. You can look at um, um, 2 Timothy 3.16. You can look at 2 Peter 1.21, other passages and so forth that talk about that inspiration and, and inerrancy. No, no error in the original text of the Bible. But, um, but Moses, Moses and God co-wrote the Pentateuch. And that being true, they, I'm convinced, and, and you could say at least that the Spirit of God knew this, even if Moses didn't, I'm convinced though that they both knew that, that the Israelites would fail at the job. So what Moses was doing was preparing the people to live skillfully and successfully in a place where all of the people around them who didn't believe what they did, uh, how, they could, how the Israelites could live successfully there among these people who had a very different view and approached life very differently, who could easily persuade the Israelites to fall into their beliefs. So God wanted and Moses wanted to vaccinate the, if you don't mind the term, some people in our country do, but he wanted to vaccinate the Israelites so that they could be immune from this effect of a of a god of a worldview that's not god-centered that's not uh, the surrounding uh, the answers to the question of, of questions of worldview in a Christ, in in a biblical way in a way that honors the true one and living god the god of abraham isaac and jacob so knowing that one of the things that moses wanted to do is to prepare the people because the canaanites would give their view of cosmology how, how the universe came into existence. The Israelites would hear that from them in, while moving into this, this promised land because they wouldn't all be killed. 
And so all of a sudden the Israelites could scratch their head if, if they had no other answer to where did all things come from. They could fall prey to the Canaanites' uh, answer to what is the origin of all things. And God and Moses together wanted to, to prepare them to be able to answer that in a way that they wouldn't have to cave. They wouldn't have to give in. They wouldn't have to say, well, we have no answer to that. I don't know how all things came about. So Genesis 1 and cre the creation account is extremely important. It's so important that everybody who understands this, this topic of worldview, they know that the origin of all things is one of the seven most important questions that you can ask to determine a person's worldview. So Moses gave a God-centered worldview's answer to how you, uh, how you are to understand the, uh, the origin of all things. That's, that's really where it all stems from. Mm. Awesome. All right. So now I want to get in, uh, get into the text here. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, d depending on your translation, you know, Genesis one reads in the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth, heavens and the earth. Um, you mentioned that there's an emphasis, um, within that verse. Uh, what's the emphasis of Genesis one, one? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, if you know and love Hebrew, it all makes perfect sense. Hebrew has a very, um, very structured default word order. Now, I, I said that very purposefully because there isn't one, just one uh, form of word order that you will see with Hebrew. But what you also ha have to say is there's a default. There is a, a way that it normally is done unless there's some kind of emphasis that's being placed there by the author. And in Hebrews, in Genesis 1.1, um, it varies. That first sentence in the Bible varies from the default word order. Well, what is, what is the, um, the standard default word order? In English, it's what we call SVO in short, which means subject comes first. Uh, we're looking at the main components, subject, verb, and direct object. John hit the ball with his bat, right? Very simple statement. But yeah. you've got all the structure of a, a typical sentence that has a subject, a verb, and a direct object there. John is the subject. Uh, hit is the verb. The ball is the direct object. Now, in English, it's possible to get away with saying that same thing in a different word order, but it's kind of weird, sure. right? Um, the ball, John hit, right? If you put a pause there, the ball, John hit, or John hit hard, right? You could do that, but it's a little little odd. It's, not, it's very atypical. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because our default word order is, is usually used in English, and if you don't use it, it's either because of emphasis or because you don't know English very well. Right. So Hebrew has a default word order too, V-S-O, verb, subject, object. So in our sentence, it would be, hit John the ball with his bat. Hit John the ball with his bat. You've just ch changed SVO to VSO. That's how Hebrew works. The standard Hebrew word order is verb, subject, direct object. But when you vary from that, it's because you as a writer or you as a speaker in Hebrew want to thrust the listener's ear toward one thing in particular, right? So you could put something in the beginning of that. 
maybe it's a VSO, but there's something that that's put before it, like a prepositional phrase or an adverb or something like that, where usually that kind of thing would come after the verb, somewhere after the verb. In this case, if you put it in the beginning, it's to scream to your listener that this is the most important thing. And that's what we've got going on in Hebrew, where it says, in the beginning, created God, the Shemayim, the, that which is above from the perspective of a person standing on earth, then the earth, right? So that's how it reads as I read it from the Hebrew text. Now, um, the word that's out of order, that's out of the standard um, default word order is, it's not just a word, it's a prepositional phrase, in the beginning. So what, what's, what's wild about that for me is most of the meat in this, in this sentence seems to be what follows that prepositional phrase. I can talk about that meat all day long. Yeah. But what's most important to Moses as the author, oddly enough, to me, as the, as the reader of Hebrew, is that first prepositional phrase. He wants that to jump off the page at you. In the beginning. And here's what's interesting, too, about that. The word the that, that I say in English, that's, that's an article, right? It's a definite article. Hebrew has a definite article, but that, there's no definite article there. That's really weird. Hmm. Either that means it was one of many beginnings, or, and, and that would kind of probably be the, the view of maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's what they do something similar in John 1 1, by the way. Hmm. Yeah. Um, when they say that the word was a God. No, it's not saying that the word was a God. They're correct that there's no definite article there, but in Greek, the emphasis of what's called an anarthrous construction. It's a its a noun or a, a substantive or something without an article, right? The emphasis there without the article isn't indefiniteness like it would be in English. A ship, as in we have a fleet of 60 ships, right? A ship, it's just one of the ships. A ship from my fleet left before the others. All 59 stayed back and that one went, right? But um, the emphasis there is on quality in John 1 1. Uh, the word was, the word being a, re a veiled reference to Jesus, the word was by quality God, which means this all of the characteristics and qualities of God the Father, all of those, everything he has, his incommunicable attributes like his eternality and his. Um, is omnipresence, right? That we can't share those qualities. Those are, those are incommunicable. He can't communicate those to us. He can't give them to us. He, he alone has those. So the incommunicable attributes and the communicable, communicable attributes of God, all of those things that are true of the Father are true of the Word. That's what's going on in John 1.1. Yeah. Okay? Now, let's come back to Genesis 1.1. Uh, the fact that we have no article here it's screaming out something different at us. With Hebrew, you have multiple ways to express definiteness in Hebrew. The easiest way is an article, just like in English. In Hebrew, it's, well, in English, it's the, the definite article. But in Hebrew, that definite article is ha, right? Ha, that's the definite article. But it's not there in, in this prepositional phrase, in the beginning. In most English Bibles, you see that, that word the that's added. Why did they add it? Literally, it's in beginning. Another way to express definiteness in Hebrew is 
one of what's called affectionately called one of a kind in the universe. Um, there's a certain gate, and I'm pretty sure what I'm uh, vaguely remembering is the gate of Samaria, right? The city of Samaria, it was the capital of the northern uh, kingdom. Um, and, and, and at Samaria, they had this walled city in the capital, and, and there was a gate through which you could enter into the city. Well, there was only one capital, and there was only one Samaria, uh, and it had only one gate. So when they wrote about that gate of Samaria, they didn't write an article. They, they didn't say, the gate of Samaria um, had 50 people entering each day, right? You don't need the there. Why? Because there's one of a kind in the universe. Right. There's only one gate of, of Samaria, and that's it. You go through it or you don't go through it, there's only one gate. So because there's only one gate, you don't need the article. There's already inherent definiteness. And that's true, according to the biblical writer, with the beginning of Genesis 1.1. In beginning. What beginning? The one-of-a-kind beginning. There is no other comparable beginning. There is only one. And you know what that screams out at me? This uh, interesting modern concept we have of the multiverse, right? Mm -hmm. Watch uh, Avengers films or other um, films or um, documentaries, even um, where they talk about the um, the concept of a multiverse. Right? This is the new fashionable thing. There's not just one universe. There could be hundreds of universes. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Genesis one one is screaming out to me. That's a wonderful idea, but it's wrong. Why? Because this is the one and only beginning. And right. for whatever reason, Moses is screaming out at his listener, at his reader, focus on this as the most important thing in the sentence. In the one-of-a-kind beginning, here is what God did. Mm. Right. So that's the emphasis in this mm. first sentence in the Bible. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um and that so I mean how you read Genesis 1 1 affects how you read uh, Genesis 1 2 so there are different ways on how those two verses relate um, so Genesis 1 in the beginning God created heavens and the earth um, and the earth was formless and void um, and there was darkness over the, the the waters the deep abyss and then the spirit of God was hovering over the the waters um, what are the, the ways, the different ways that, that people interpret how one relates to two and then, you know, which uh, interpretation uh, do you go with? Sure. And I'm only going to talk about two views. There are other views out there that are maybe somewhat more fringe or somewhat more um, rarely adhered to. So right. the, the two most, I think, the most dominant and the most... Uh, um, the two views with the most honest potential to them would be one, the, the typical classical view that what you read about in Genesis 1-1 is part of a sequential narrative. And th the reason for believing this is uh, the focus of the entire chapter of Genesis. And let me introduce a problem, okay, before I get back to this and, and go further. This problem was introduced to me when I was a um, taking my first college course in Southern California in 1983, in the fall of 83. There was a professor teaching in a Western Civ course who 
started the course not in the West, but in the East, right? He wanted to talk about the views of creation that the Sumerians had and the Akkadians had and the Hebrews had and so forth. And when he pointed his finger at the Bible, he said, he said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, because it's so long ago, I don't remember his exact words. But he, he said, you know, um, here's something you need to understand about the Bible. It gives you two views of the creation of all things. Do you ever think about this? None of the other ancient peoples have two views of creation. They only have one. Each culture has one. The Bible, two. Why does it have two? Well, obviously, they're very different. In fact, they're so different that they contradict one another. And if you have two different contradictory uh, accounts or stories of creation, goodness gracious, folks, you can't trust the history of this thing, right? That's what he told our class. And of course, I'm an 18-year-old student. I didn't know then as much as I know now. Um, I was bothered. My blood was boiling. I was a Christian at the time, and I knew this guy was wrong and badly wrong. But I didn't know how to refute him. Now I know exactly how to refute him. How, how can you refute that argument? It's easy. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 don't give two conflicting stories of creation. In fact, what you see there is Moses' uh, modus operandi. Throughout the book of Genesis, over and over and over and over, he has a literary practice of giving you the big picture, which is the big timeline, and then it goes from beginning to end, right? From one early point to one late point. He's done. And then as soon as he's done, what he does is he goes into detail about something from that earlier timeline. I, I relate it to sure. um, piloting over uh, a forest, right? If you're in a plane, it's, it's a big plane. It's got pressurization and all. You can go to 40,000 or 32,000 feet or whatever, and you can fly over it. You can show somebody the whole forest from above. So you're just looking at quick moments because you're going so fast, you're so high, you're just boom, boom, you know, frog jumping from lily pad to lily pad. And then let's say halfway through the journey though, we parachute down and we land in the forest. We get out our microscopes and we start looking at the bark of the trees under a microscope, right? So that's at the macro level. And yeah. that's what Moses does. He gives you the, um, the big picture at 40,000 feet, and then he gives you the uh, boots on the ground view. Yeah, right? and so you're, you're talking about Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. Um, yes. I just wanna be clear, the question, and I don't know if you're, you're making a point to get back to the, the question, but I'm asking about the relationship between Genesis uh, one one and Genesis one two. Yes. The first, okay, yes. okay, just, yeah, yes. just clarify. This is all part of that. I got you, I got you. All part of that. So, um, so the, 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 um, uh, where was I, where did I leave off? Um, you were mentioning that chapter two is oh, a yes. more detailed. Yes. Account. So, so that same pattern Moses has throughout the book of Genesis. He also starts the book of Genesis with it, where he gives the 40,000 feet. It's Genesis one, one through two, four. And then two, five through the end of chapter two, is the boots on the ground. It's looking under the microscopes. So mm -hmm. what's going on in 1, 1 through 2, 4? And I tell all my students, it's, it's easy. This is the order of creation. O-R-D-E-R, -E the order of creation. It's chronological. Moses right. is clear about this. Day one, all these things happen. That's one, one day. That's, that's day one. 
All these things happen on the second day. That's day two. All these things on the third day. That's day three. Go through all six days and then he rests on the seventh. That's strictly chronological, like Luke and his gospel, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the order of creation. Then in 2, 5 through the rest of chapter 2, what Moses does, he gives us the, the pinnacle of creation. Oh, the pinnacle of creation. Well, what's the pinnacle of creation? It's easy. Mankind. Mankind. That's the most important thing that God creates in all six days of creation. It's not the biggest thing he creates. It's not the, the hottest or the, the most um, uh, visually impressive or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the pinnacle. It's the point of it all. It's for mankind that God made the earth and the cosmos to mm -hmm. look out at nighttime, for example, and see the glory of God, Romans 1, and know that it was created by um, an infinite um, uh, creator, right? So that being the case... Two five through the end of two, it's 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 parachuting down in to a certain moment on the greater timeline of Genesis one one through two four. Well, what moment is that? Day six. Right. That's the focus. Day six. That's when mankind is created. Now let's expand that out and tell you more about creation in two five through the end of two. So, not two contradictory accounts of creation. It's two different things going on, and it's a literary tool that Moses uses, that he uses throughout the book of Genesis. So yeah. these, these secular professors who are duping Christians, uh, it's, a, it's a fool's errand that they're on. They don't know their own futility. They don't know their own foolishness when they're talking about these things. They don't know the issues. They don't understand the structure or anything that's going on there. So that being true, one of the main um, understandings of how to relate the first sentence of creation, right? Genesis 1-1 with what comes with in 2 and following. Some people take 1-1 as a bracket, as a beginning bracket. And then there's an end bracket. Where's that end bracket? Well, that end bracket is in um, chapter, um, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. I'm sorry, cha chapter 2, verse 4, the end of the order of creation where he's basically repeating what he said in 1.1. These are the histories of the cosmos and the earth in their having been created on the day he who is God made the earth and the cosmos, right? It's a little bit more expansive, but essentially it's the same thing. So scholars will tell us, well, 2.4 is the closing bracket. And there's a term that's used for this. Um, it, it forms a chiasm, right? So what you say at the beginning, you say at the end. What you say second, you say next to last. What you say third, you say next to next to last. That kind of thing. And it mo moves its way in toward a main point in the middle. Yeah, I agree that there's a chiasm there. I agree that there's literary structure there. I agree that there's a repetition in 2-4 with what's said at one in 1-1. One, one. But here's, here's the thing. And my brother is part of this band of people who believe this that I totally disagree with. Um... He's, he and others are convinced that one, one, what's going on in 1-1 isn't part of the narrative. That it's, it's like a heading. It's, right. a, a, um, it, it's just purely a bracket. Well, I've got news for you. That is wrong and badly wrong. That's not what's going on in Genesis 1-1 and 2 following. No. He's closing the story on the greater part of the 
40,000 feet, big picture with 2.4. That's what he's doing. That's, what he's, that's why he's bracketing it. But it's not as though this is a chapter heading. Or in our Bibles, for example, we've got these things called uh, the, uh, the, the, whatever it is called, the, the, the chapter as a superscription at the top mm-hmm. of a book, yeah. right? Yeah. Every page of the Bible, it says Genesis. The Bible wasn't written that way. No. Why do we have those there? No. We added them. Moses didn't say that. No. We had it there for our own understanding. We added a structure to it, yeah. right? Right. And it, it is a figurehead at that moment. It's not part of the text. But Genesis 1-1 is. Moses never said that he was using it as a purely as a non-historical bracket. In fact, what we see going on, the transition from 1-1 to 1-2, we see something very important. We see an, an outworking of what I already talked about, which is the order of creation. It's all chronological. You can't have in 1-2, right? You can't have uh, something going on there, such as the earth being unformed and unfilled and darkness over the surface of the primordial deep and the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. You can't have any of that unless you have a planet. What's the planet, right? What's the planet? Yeah, it's easy. It's in the. It's at the end of one one. It the Earth is the planet. The Earth is is the is the globe, right? The celestial globe that's unformed and unfilled at the beginning, and the Earth is the one that was existing in darkness over the surface of the primordial deep, meaning that there was water covering the entire thing, and it was all in darkness, and the Spirit of God hovered, kind of like a hovercraft or a helicopter, right, zooming over the surface of the waters, checking it all out. Um, observing it, being fascinated by it, um, rejoicing in it, probably telling God the Father and God the Son all the beautiful things he was seeing. So there's so much to that going on. But none of that can happen if you don't have a planet, right? Yeah. So one one can't just be structural because it introduces the origin of the Earth that is that celestial object that we're looking at in verse 2. Does that make sense? That makes total sense, yeah. I mean, it's it's natural for us to read, as you said, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth, okay, this is a title, this is a heading, and now we're jumping in, we're, we're looking into how he did that, right? Now the narrative begins, this is an introduction into the narrative. Um, but you make a good point, we don't really see, we don't see that anywhere else in in Genesis where there's like this little header we get before the story begins. Um, And so once you embrace that, then you can kind of, it kind of leads you to jump in. And there are some very different ways to read Genesis 1. Um, Genesis 1, and some would even take that to say, okay, we just get a blanket statement in the beginning, God creates heavens and the earth, and that's all we get. And then when we get in, in, in Genesis 2 is not even the story like it's not even the header, like that's just done. And then Genesis two is talking about something else. And so you can kind of jump into some radically different um, uh, interpretations there. Um, and in, in, in a sense that makes a little bit more sense than what you described, because as soon as we get into the header um, description, because as soon as we get into verse two, we have the earth. So it's like, we can't introduce, this is how God makes the heaven and the earth and then start with the earth. <laughs> right. We, we, we have God creating the earth, and then in verse 2, um, 
something's yeah, happening that, on that earth. The earth, the earth that he created. Yeah. So, um, I think that's that is the most natural way uh, to read it, even though um, it's real easy to jump on one of those other interpretations. So, uh, I'm, I'm tracking with you there. Um, the earth uh, was formless and empty. So this is kind of a, a a puzzling thing. Some people like will embrace a gap theory because of this formless and empty earth, and would say that something happened to it. Uh, so there was you know a large gap of time in between verses one one and verse one two. Um, it sort of begs the question: Why why was the earth created um, this way, formless and empty? Mm-hmm. And, and that's why, Samuel, I think a better way of interpreting tohu avohu is unformed and unfilled, mm-hmm. which means it didn't yet have its final form that it would later have, where there's water separated from land and land has risen out of the water and so forth, and there's habitation um, on the land and in the water and so forth. So it hadn't yet reached the place where it was formed as it would be later. That's the emphasis. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. filled like it would be Mm -hmm. in later days, right? Where you'd have all the animals on the land and all the sea creatures in the water and so forth, and and all the plants on the land. So it was not filled with vegetation. It was not filled with animals. It was not filled with people. So that is the emphasis of that very beginning moment. Moses was wanting his reader to know and understand that it wasn't all started in final form. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't it didn't just zap into being and there are people walking around and animals walking around and plants showing yeah. their greenery, right? It right. wasn't like that. There was a process for it to get to its originally formed state to what's the later finished form. Which is, which is form and is filled. So yeah. that's what's going on there. There's no reason to, to introduce the concept of extra thousands or extra millions or extra billions of years, whatever, for God to be able to figure things out and to work all these things out on the earth. He didn't need all that extra time to do that. He could do it in a moment's notice. He could snap his fingers. I mean, think about it. When Adam was created, Was he an embryo? No, he wasn't an embryo. He wasn't in a womb. He was fully formed and fully functional. So were the first animals that were created. So were the first plants that were created. Um, So none of the beings, none of the life forms on the earth were, were, um, came to their fullness immediately. Right, I'm sorry, none of them, um, none, none of them came about um, from, from the normal process that we would expect later in Earth history when we were seeing babies first hatch, um, birthed, and we're, we're seeing uh, trees um, first sprouting from seeds and so forth. Yeah. So um, the whole point is we weren't yet at that stage where the earth was completely formed and completely filled. This is an earlier stage. The earth would go through a process before it would um, come to where it was ready. So there's no reason to introduce things like millions of years. Yeah. Theologically, we, we move from glory to glory. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I see that 
that pattern here. Um, wow, wow, wow. So this is something that kind of causes, um, on, on the surface of it, um, problems because we we see the sun as our source of light, and that was created on day four. Yet day one, uh, God says, "Let there be light," and so uh, it's it's hard to remedy light before the sun. And so some people they take it out of this chronological order, and they um, sometimes explain this, you know, with a uh, you know a poetic interpretation, um, a framework. Uh, so you had a really, really, really interesting take on, on the light source, uh, for day one. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, first let's talk about possibilities for what this light could be. And, and that's something that you want to do because it's, the text isn't so clear. So it gives us the opportunity to explore options and that's fair game to try to understand and, and solve what this is. So one view that's given is that this is, believe it or not, that this is our sun, right? It's soul, S-O-L. This is um, the, the star that works together with our solar system and its planets. Well, the problem with it, you already pointed out, no, soul isn't created until day four of creation, according to Genesis 1.16. So that being true, it's not, it's not, it's not completely genuine. It's just ingenuous to suggest that this could be the sun, that it just kind of shows up and then maybe disappears for three days and shows up again. No, that doesn't make any sense. God creates our sun, soul, with all of the other stars mm -hmm. on that fourth day. So, probably not. Second option is that it's a later destroyed star. In other words, God created a temporary star, not like our star, soul, which was once it was created on day four, it was to be permanent for the life cycle of life on Earth and what happens on our planet. Um, well, the problem with this is this notion is not much in keeping with God's character. God isn't haphazard. He's not chaotic. He doesn't do things and all of a sudden realize, oh, well, I mean, what are we going to suggest here? That God accidentally created an inferior sun? Maybe it was too hot. Maybe it was, wasn't hot enough or, or something. So he created it, got earth there, and he could see, I don't know, it was melting earth or something. And so he had to get rid of it immediately. So he blasted into um, um, non-existence, and he waits three days, and then on the fourth day he creates a permanent sun. Well, that's we can't say God can't do that. Yeah, God can do it, but it makes no sense with God's character. He's, he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't mess things up the first time and have to make them better the second time. So this, this option probably isn't so good. Third option that's given, and this is maybe more common than the other first two, a lot of people will say, well, maybe God is the light of creation. Okay, let's look at that option. Could God be the light? the temporary light that shines on earth. Well, what does it say in Revelation 22.5? It says this, Now there will be no night any longer, and there will not have any need of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, meaning all those who are on 
the new earth. So in the end times, when there's a new earth, not our same earth, but a new earth, with that earth, there's not going to be any night. On our earth, we have day and night, day and night, day and night. It's endless. But on that earth, night is eliminated. Well, what's going to be the source of the light? Is it going to be another star with its heat and energy and light and radiation and all of that? Answer, no. It's not going to be another star. Instead, the Lord God himself will illumine them. Oh, okay. So what is it like on an earth? This is the, the new earth. It, it, it can be designated an earth, one of the two earths. What's it like on an earth where there uh, where, where God is the light for that earth? Well, it's clear. There's no more night. Oh, there's no night. So there's not anything to cut a division between light and darkness on the earth like there is with day one of creation, where it says um, that that exactly took place. Okay, so if God is the light on the earth, then there will be no night and no darkness, and we'll be awake all the time. In other words, God's illuminating ability prevents shadows, pre prevents shadows. It prevents darkness. It's right. all-encompassing. Mm -hmm. So that being true, it's not being fair to say that God could be the light of day one of creation. It doesn't really work. If it, if it did work, there wouldn't be a dark side of the earth. But Genesis 1 is very clear about there being a dark side of the earth, right? Mm -hmm. that, that as the earth was turning on its axis, and you were standing at any point on the earth, and you were going around with the earth, it was morning, and then it was day, and then it was night, right? And then it was the end of the day, and then day two starts. So you're spinning on the earth with this axis. What, what happens um, when you spin into the into the night. Well, you've crossed that border into the darkness. So there's darkness on the earth, can't be God. Another option is angels. Some people say, well, it could be angels that lit the earth. But here's one problem with that. The morning stars of, of Job 38, 7, they're, they're specifically called morning stars. And the context of Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, of Job 38, 7 is the creation of the earth. Job essentially, and I'm sorry, God essentially in Job 38 is looking at the earth and basically speaking out to Job and saying, look, Job, if you think you've got things together, you think you understand things, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? On what were its bases sunk, right? All of those kinds of questions that, oh, gee, no, I wasn't really there. And nobody I know was there. And no human in human history was there to observe. So who are we to say we know how the earth was formed? We don't. And that's a really important part in the, of this whole equation, looking at Genesis 1 and, and creation, the first day and the other days of creation. Nobody was there, so there's a lot more we don't know than what we do know. Okay? But the morning stars of Job 38.7, those are angels, no doubt about it from the context. That's pretty much not disputed among scholars. The morning stars or angels were observers and cheerleaders at creation, not objects of the creation. Mm -hmm. They were spirit beings watching 
I don't know, maybe with binoculars or something, checking it all out and cheering. They probably had flags they were waving and horns they were blowing, and, you know, jumping up and down and, you know, as angelic beings can, as spirit beings can. But they were there to watch it happen and to be in amazement and to be in awe of God. They weren't participating. There's no element of the creation where they're participate, participants of it or they're objects of it. They're watching it take place. So angels, no, doesn't really work. So if that's true, and all these options for what is the light of day one of creation don't work, is there anything that does work? I think there's something that, that could possibly fit here. And that's this. You know, you look at day four of creation, not only was the sun created, which is soul, our star, but the moon was created, and they're called the greater and the lesser light. Why? Because the emphasis, the spotlight, says if all of creation is a stage, and everything on it, it's part of God's creation, part of God's stage, part of his production that he's putting on. Well, as, as with any production, you know, you often have a spotlight on a person or two people or some certain thing going on on the stage. And so you beam that spotlight onto it, and that's what really is magnified. And I think the same thing um, seems to be going on here with uh, day one. So um, if, if in day four, I'm sorry, so in day four, the, the, the sun and the moon are what's, what's in the spotlight. And then it says that the other stars were created. The crazy part about that with day four is it's almost an afterthought, the mention of all of these other stars that are created. Right. Think about right. it. Yeah. We're talking about billions and trillions and, you know, the highest number we have actually is Google, by the way. There's a Google of stars that are created. But that's all the ink you want to give to it, Moses? Oh, and by the way, yeah, the stars were created. Well, let's move on to something else. That's, that's how the text reads. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's almost bizarre, but it's not as important as what's where the spotlight is shining the most. So the spotlight returns to planet Earth, right? So, but, the, but here's the whole point. So the sun and the moon and, and the, all the stars that are created on day four, from what are they composed? What, what is it that's their source? From what do they derive? And I think it fits together with day one. This is a theory. Uh, maybe even you can call it a hypothesis. Uh, I won't go to the, to the wall for it. I won't, you know, if a firing squad is pointing at me saying, tell us that this has to be the right answer. I can't say it's the right answer, but it, it's what makes most sense to me. That maybe on day one, what God did is in one or multiple, and my guess would be multiple, in one or multiple places, in the deep, dark expanse of the universe, which, by the way, according to Genesis 1-1, the first thing God creates is the Shemaim, that which is above the earth from the perspective of a person standing on planet earth. The Shemaim can be one of three things. It can be the abode of God, where God lives. It can be the... Um, the the light blue sky in the daytime. As I look outside my window up into the sky, it's light blue. That's the Shemayim. And birds fly in that. We call it the atmosphere, pretty much. But the third option is deep, dark space. So when the Earth turns and I'm in 
a place where it's dark and I look out at night and I see all these stars, I'm looking through the deep, dark, black expanse of the cosmos, the universe. And it's endless, isn't it? It's without borders. So could it be possible that what God did is he created one or multiple places where there was this, I don't even know what to call it. There was a blob. Well, there were many blobs in different places in the universe. And then on day four, God took those blobs. Well, what's in those blobs? Uh, heat, light, energy, matter. I mean, all the components of objects that are found in the universe. Maybe even you could add dark matter to that and other things that, that um, astrophysicists tell us about that, that exist in the universe that we can't see. So... All those elements, they're together in this glob, and it maybe have would have been in an amazing in an amazing size. And that glob, all of a sudden on day four, God gave order to it. God mo started moving it. God started shaping it and did it quickly, extremely quickly. And so maybe there was one of these globs that was in relative distance, in relative proximity to the Earth, meaning it was much closer than the other globs that are throughout the universe that are just kind of compositions of all forms of heat, light, energy, matter, and so forth. And this one, on day four, he, he started it into an orderly movement into forming things with it, objects with it. And maybe that glob was the Milky Way galaxy, our own native galaxy. And maybe he spun our galaxy in a direction and it's moving through the universe, right? Um, about 20 years or so ago, uh, astrophysicists determined mathematically and, and through, um, through empirical study that at an early point in the universe, that light traveled much faster than the constant of the speed of light today, which is what, 186,000 mm -hmm. meters per second squared, I believe, or, or miles, miles, or, wait, kilometers, 180,000 maybe miles per, no, 186,000 miles per second, maybe. I think that's what it is for the speed of light. Anyway, the speed of light traveled much faster earlier in the history of the universe. Well, if that's true, it would fit together perfectly with what we see going on on day four. God takes this blob of materials, and he gives it an order, gives it a shape, and starts making objects out of it. So with it, he creates, in this case with our Milky Way galaxy's blob, he creates all the stars of the Milky Way and is spinning them in an order that we can now see and determine that there is these these sets of spirals that emanate out from the center. And then, of course, in the center is a supermassive black hole known as Sagittarius A-star. So it's possible that the creation of the galaxy that we're in, the Milky Way galaxy, it's possible that took place on day four. God spun all of this in a direction with movement and shape and so forth, and he created all the stars of our galaxy, all the planets, all the comets, other celestial objects, and included in that was our solar system. So out of that glob came the material for our sun. So he creates our sun, 
and it spins in a direction toward us and is ends up very close to us. It's close to Earth and all the other planets as well. Now, astronomers will tell us that the Earth didn't begin before other objects in the cosmos. But my conviction is, if you are committed to the literal integrity of the text in Genesis 1, you are forced to accept the view that the Earth was the first object created in the deep, dark expanse of the limitless cosmos or universe. Earth came first and everything else after it. So that light of the first day of, of, uh, of creation, I think it's the light emanating from what later would become the Milky Way galaxy. Again, um, am I convinced that's right? No, but it certainly seems to fit everything better than any other option I've looked at. Yeah, interesting. All right, this will be my last question, and this is um, about the, the concept of time. So there is an interpretation that what we see on day one is the beginning of time. Um, there was no time prior to that. Uh, we have um, the light that is called day, uh, the darkness is called night. Um, we have day, we have night, that's the first day. Um, did time exist? Um, if we're just defining time as, you know, a 24-hour day, the concept of having um, that time passing between day and night, uh, did that start on day one? Great question. And my conviction is this is one of the places where we can stand side by side with pretty much all of the astrophysicists and other uh, astronomers and, uh, and people who study um, cosmology. We can stand next to them in, in agreement. They tell us that in terms of time and, and in terms of the universe and mathematics and astrophysics, that time, uh, that, that time and the physical universe go hand in hand. That time began when the universe began. And mm -hmm. they, obviously you can consult them to give all of the, the gory details behind that in, in their terms. It's their field, not mine. But I agree with them 100%. I think that when Moses is, is introducing uh, day one of creation, and he says that this was in the very beginning, he's not just talking about the beginning of the physical order. He's also talking about the beginning of space and time that work hand in hand as we know them. So it's yeah. all working harmoniously. So yes, time begins with the creation of the universe. So. Um, the clock starts ticking once that moment happens that God starts creating deep dark black of the cosmos. And by the way, I'll end with this, Samuel. One thing that's fascinating to me that I don't know of anyone else who's picked up on this. If they have, I just haven't heard about it. But one of the most fascinating elements of the first six days of creation is the very creation of darkness. I mean, think about it. We, we later read in scripture of God. He says, uh, or, or the biblical writer says, 
God is light, right, John, and in him is no darkness. Think about that. There is no darkness in God. So what does God create first? You know, you could think of amazing things that God, you know, if you could pick for God what he would create first, what would it be? You know, a fruit tree or, you know, a planet or whatever. But no, what does he do? He creates the antithesis of himself. Mind-blowing. In him is no darkness. What does he create? Darkness. Not just a little bitty bit of darkness, an infinite amount of darkness, an endless expanse of darkness, the antithesis of God. Wow. That's just mind-blowing. To be able to create a universe where we can see God's handiwork, he has to create first the antithesis of himself. And of course, the other part of that equation is it's the background, right? It's like a painter. What does the painter create first? He makes, you know, he has his palette full of paints and he has, you know, his smock and he has uh, his brush and he has the easel and he has the canvas, right? And what, what does he make first when he starts dipping in, in a certain color? He makes the background, doesn't he? Background first, main object second, Peripheral objects third. That's how it goes. That's how almost every artist paints almost every painting. Yeah, it varies, but that's that's the general default order. So God is the divine painter. What does he paint, though? He doesn't use a two-dimensional paintbrush to, uh, pa paintbrush to create a two-dimensional um, painting. He uses a three-dimensional painting ability, and he paints a deep, dark, expanse that is limitless to reflect the incommunicable attribute of God that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere. And everywhere you could go in the universe, God is there. So um, there's this amazing reflection of God in his handiwork and what he creates first. Mm. Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, thank you again uh, for, for coming on. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, please tell us um, anything that you're working on, how people can kind of get in touch with you and your work, uh, and then if you will, close this out in prayer. Sure. Um, you can find me on uh, a number of ways. Uh, Twitter slash X, you can find me there. Uh, I think I'm at Petrovich Doug, if I'm not mistaken, but you could Google my name and, and Twitter and it would come up. Um, so you can find me there and what I'm up to lately, always there. You, you are welcome to DM me there. Um, I interact with people through direct message, so that's a way of getting in touch with me. I'm on academia.edu, which for me is the real Facebook in the world, by the way. It's where you go to, to expose yourself to the learning of people in all different fields of study and, um, and thought. So... Um, I've, I've got a page there and I've uploaded my journal articles there. You can download those for free. I've uploaded the front matter to my first two books there. You can download and read the, the front matter for free um, if you're interested. And lots of other resources that are up there. Um, and what I'm working on now, I just finished recently the writing of and, and the editing of my third book. It's called Nimrod the Empire Builder. Uh, Architect of Shock and Awe is the subtitle to it. And it should be hopefully in print by the end of October 2023. If not, 
sometime in November 2023. Uh, it will be available on Amazon when it's ready. It's in the typesetter's hands right now. I'm waiting for proofs, more proofs to come from him. I've corrected several proofs already through Chapter 2. I'm waiting for the other chapters. Once that's ready, we'll get it launched. Um, you, if you want a signed copy, you can buy it directly from me, and I'll literally sign it from home, at home, and ship it out to you myself. I'm a one-man operation and be glad to send it to you. I'll get better royalties that way. You can find that on my Twitter page, how to do that. It, it will, it's not up today, but it, at some point it will be up, um, how to do that with me, um, or Amazon, or through several consigners who are going to be selling it for me. So I'm really excited about that book. It answers who is the historical figure that we can match with biblical Nimrod, because people really are fascinated by this Nimrod guy of Genesis 10. Who is he? Because yeah. we don't find somebody by that name in the historical record, right? per se. But yeah. I'm convinced we can connect him with a historical figure. So I argue for that in this book, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Cool. Yeah, that sounds so, awesome. How about if I pray? Yeah, go ahead. Father, thank you so much for the time that we've had to talk through things, especially related to creation and Genesis 1, Genesis 2. We know that you were very purposeful in bringing about the recording of these events because you wanted to communicate things about what you did at the time. This isn't haphazard. This isn't chaotic. This is very orderly. This is very uh, impressive. This is very awe-inspiring, even humbling. When we start to see a little bit of what you did, even if we can't see it with a video camera that has recorded it. We understand it, Lord, and you want us to accept it by faith because without faith, it's impossible to please you. So give us, Father, the strength to believe, right? Uh, just as Jesus said to Thomas, doubting Thomas, uh, you have seen and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. Lord, help us to believe that you created everything in six literal days to the glory of your name and your deeds forever and ever. Bless us that we would be a blessing to other, you, others. Use us in ways far beyond how we should be used. Um, but because of your greatness, because of your glory, because of your power, you use weak and broken vessels such as we. And we pray, Lord, that you use us powerfully to do and accomplish amazing things. And may it all be to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, who will one day return to this earth and take that which is his and reestablish his kingdom on earth in Jerusalem. And he will reign forever and ever. We praise you in his holy and precious name. Amen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with somebody you know. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.